let's begin by reciting our um, our prayer, the Lord's Prayer. As I mirror our thing on the screen, that I printed out out on the second page of your notes this time, in case anyone was having trouble seeing. All right, there we go. Pardon? Um, Timothy Keller. Yep. Yeah, so anytime there are quotation marks around something, that's Timothy Keller's writings. And basically everything that I say is just a reflection on what he's writing. So, you know, don't ever quote me if you were inclined to say from Tim Keller's book, I learned, you know, this, that's where this is coming from. And then as usual, I'd encourage you to purchase the book and not like make a bunch of photocopies of all the quotes in his notes. Um, so we could probably reconstruct like half of his book just from the quotes in these notes, which is actually strangely how we have a lot of um, the biblical text in Greek is we can reconstruct things that are missing in Greek manuscripts from the church fathers who just quoted the Bible all the time. That's how we have most of church history um, is this guy Eusebius just quoted a ton of ancient people. We don't have their work, so we have his quotes. So if Tim Keller's books all get eradicated from planet Earth for some reason, we'll have a lot of forgive here. But let's start by um, reciting the Lord's Prayer. The purpose in doing it, again, is to frame our orientation towards forgiveness, just as we have been forgiven. And uh, though many of us know of church traditions and maybe people in those traditions where um, this is sometimes said thoughtlessly, it's in the Bible. And we shouldn't say, I refuse to say the Lord's Prayer because I know of this Catholic person who says it five times a day but is not forgiving at all or doesn't mean it. That would be silly of us to give up one of the greatest resources that Jesus gave us because some people have failed to use it appropriately. So if anyone's feeling weird about reciting the Lord's Prayer, you don't need to. Um, these are Jesus's words and Jesus's positive use of it can outweigh any negative use that you've encountered. So let's say it together here. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good. Well, I won't ask anybody to respond, but I wonder if this past week, you've had an opportunity to forgive someone their debts or their sin or offense against you as you've been forgiven. Have you been in a spot this week where you've needed to do that, but maybe haven't done that? On the flip side, have you been in a spot where you've sinned against somebody and have needed to repent to them and ask for forgiveness in keeping with the principles that we've been learning in this class. If we aren't evaluating our lives in light of what we're learning, it's not going to do us a lot of good. 
um, I think if you're like me, probably if, if you look back on this past week, you've been on both sides of that, where you've had a responsibility to issue forgiveness and you've had a requirement to repent for certain things. That's just being human. Uh, that's, well, at least in our unglorified uh, state, that's being human. We're, we're sinners. Well, in the previous lessons, we've talked about the glaring absence of forgiveness throughout human history. This was our lesson last week. And we noted that the absence of forgiveness was filled by the teaching of Jesus and his followers. But in the Western world, our contemporary world, uh, Jesus' influential teaching on forgiveness has faded. It's been replaced with a modern therapeutic approach that attempts to relieve any sense of guilt as it focuses on the life of the inner person as an individual rather than as part of a community. Um, and that contributes to the absence of forgiveness. I think this notion that life is primarily about me and what I'm feeling. You know, it was good that we got some of that emphasis from the Romantic period. You know, the Romantic poets really helped us out with that. But the problem is when we're only thinking about our feelings and us, we no longer have the capacity to empathize or show compassion or care about the interests of others. So we, we have to break free from that. Um, one example that we considered last week is the Amish community, is an a example of a community that practices forgiveness and puts the interests of other people ahead of themselves. I said it would be great if anyone could read a book on Amish history or vis visit an Amish community and report back. Did anyone happen to do that this week? No? Okay, well, I listened to a, an audiobook of an Amish history, and it was really insightful. Um, I would say that Keller's mostly right when it comes to this. I'd say what the Amish um, lack in retaliation, they make up for in shunning. So it is true that there's a community of forgiveness there, and there's a community that prioritizes emphasizing the needs of the community over the individual. And that's actually often the basis of some of the shunning is when the individual's desires get asserted above the communities. But there is a lot of sectarianism within Amish communities, plural, and Mennonite communities. So as you look at the history, it's not all roses and rainbows when it comes to forgiveness. But I think we can still learn from them. And this is where I believe Kevin is, Keller is right. I think I was looking at you. And you could be right on this too, where we, we need to adopt a perspective that the needs of the community are greater than my needs alone. Um, so we can learn from the Amish era. Another factor that we thought about was the inverted shame and honor culture in which honor is afforded based on victimization, resulting in canceling rather than forgiving. So if I've been wronged, I view myself as a victim and I'm going to cancel the person who wrong, wronged me instead of moving towards them with forgiveness, with an openness towards reconciliation. Now we know reconciliation isn't always possible, but for a Christian, forgiveness is always possible even if a relationship won't be restored. And I'd say if you're wondering what's the difference between forgiving and realizing there's still not a relationship that can be had. What's the difference between that and canceling? Well, the forgiving part is what's different. 
you can forgive someone, and particularly when that person is not repentant, you don't have to pretend as if those things didn't happen and try to reestablish the exact same kind of relationship while still forgiving them. That's quite different from canceling somebody and saying, I'm done with you, we're gone. So I know just from knowing many of you, there are situations in your life where there's where you can offer forgiveness, but you can't enjoy a relationship with the person like you would want to because that person is refusing to acknowledge their wrong and repent. Christians are often in this situation, but that's very different. And the way we relate to that person when we do encounter them is very different than contemporary cancel culture. All right. Any questions on that? That's basically what we covered last week. All right. I'll read this quote um, because I thought it was really helpful. There's an urgent need for learning how to do small forgivenesses every day. We are awash in slights, letdowns, and inadvertent hurts, let alone the many deliberate ways people wrong us in small ways every day. No one can live unless he or she learns when to forgive silently, when to bring the matter up, and how to forgive even if the other person is reluctant to admit to his or her fault. Think about that. That takes wisdom to know how to be a forgiving person and to be forgiving in the right way, to pursue reconciliation in the right way. Um, There's a relationship in my life where right now, God's call on me is to forgive without bringing the matter up. That's hard because as we looked at these models of forgiveness last week, often we use forgiveness in a transactional way. We want someone to earn it and we like to establish our own power dynamic in a relationship. So sometimes when people wrong us, we like to say, hey, you don't realize you did this horrible thing and I'm gonna point it out to you and make you feel really bad and also I forgive you. And we use it as a way to like rub them in the dirt and we're not actually forgiving. Um, So we need to think about this. Um, Does anyone remember the three models of forgiveness that we talked about last week? Yep, cheap grace which is the unconditional model forgiveness, cheap grace. So we pretend as if it didn't happen, we forgive and forget, right? Okay, that's one. Little grace, grace, the transactional model forgiveness, what I was just referencing where someone has to earn it and then you can choose whether or not they've earned it enough and then you can forgive. So cheap grace, little grace. And isn't there no grace? No grace, yeah, just no forgiveness, no forgiveness. These are the three models that dominate. And when we look at, sadly, our own relationships, when we look at our society, that's what we see most of the time. So then it is really shocking when we see a costly grace forgiveness. Uh, Next week, we will look at some examples of that. Okay, so hang in there. I, I think it's pretty remarkable. And it's inspiring as well. So to recover forgiveness, we need to consider the teaching of Jesus placed within the whole canon of scripture. Um, Sometimes when we're looking for biblical help on a topic, we just look in an index for like the word forgive, and then we'll find a few verses, and then we think that's all the Bible has to say about forgiveness. 
That's not how the Bible works. You have to take everything as a whole because often the Bible will address issues without using the English word that we want used or that we might look up to find what the Bible would say about that issue. So we need to read the whole Bible and none of us can do that in a day. So we need to read, talk about these things with other people. And then when we do come across texts, we need to read them as just one part of the whole Bible. Um, if we don't do that, we might get an unbalanced view on something, or we might misunderstand something just because we're getting one angle. The Bible is not a dictionary. It's not a guidebook. So it gives us pixelated, little pixels of light, and you have to take them together to see the full picture. Um, I'm, there are a lot of ways that we could illustrate this, but if, if you just heard... I don't know, Ben's given instruction to his kid on one thing, and you think that's Ben's whole philosophy of how his kids should do their homework or something. You don't know everything that Ben would say about that. You need to think about the way he talks to all of his kids and get the aggregate of it all, and then you know, hypothesize what he would say to maybe your kid, assuming we are looking at Ben as our all authoritative guide to children's homework. But if he were, if he were, we wouldn't want to hear what just one thing that he said to one of his kids. We want everything that we can get. When we come to the Bible, we don't just want one verse. We need all of it. Um, so when it comes to forgiveness, I'd say this is especially true because it's really easy to abuse certain things or misunderstand them, and we, we want to avoid that. Um, some critics don't realize this. Some would just look up the word forgive in the Bible and not see it thousands of times and think the Bible doesn't care about forgiveness. But the concept of forgiveness and the, the theology that allows for forgiveness is everywhere in the Bible. So Keller is right when he concludes, regardless of the number of word usages, the concept of forgiveness is central to the meaning of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments and the faith of Christians. So to recover forgiveness, we need to just do a quick survey following Keller's chapter of forgiveness in the Bible. I'll admit that this survey is not very extensive, but we have to remember he's writing a chapter in a book. So the Bible has way more to say about forgiveness. And even as we look at certain sections of the Bible, you'll probably feel like he's overlooking some of your favorite forgiveness illustrations. He's not doing that because he doesn't think they're unimportant. He's just having to be concise. But we start with the book or the books of Moses. We call it the Pentateuch or the Torah. It's the first five books in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Keller primarily looks at the book of Genesis. Before we even get started, are there some key illustrations of forgiveness that you're thinking of from Genesis or from the Torah? I'm thinking of uh, Joseph and how he forgave his brothers. Yep, good. Yeah, we'll talk about him really briefly. What other examples of forgiveness? God forgiving Adam and Eve. You're right. And that's actually the very first one we'll talk about because it's the first one in the Bible. Tim? Ooh, I, it definitely didn't come up. 
I don't, yeah, I'd have to think about that. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we see God's mercy. That, of course, goes beyond the, the Pentateuch. Unless you're a liberal scholar who's arguing for a heptateuch instead of a pentateuch, but I don't think you are, Laura. <laughs> ben. Esau forgives Jacob. Um, and then we have that weird scene where Jacob deceives his brother again when he says, I'll meet you there. And then he goes off and doesn't reestablish a relationship. I don't know what to make of that. Is Jacob being wise? Is he being negatively cunning? I don't know. All right, good. We've jogged our memories a little bit. Forgiveness, both vertically, God's forgiveness to humans and at the uh, horizontal human level. Um, although forgiveness terminology is not explicitly used, especially in the book of Genesis, a careful re reading will see it in almost all of the main accounts, is what Keller says. The first appearance of forgiveness follows Adam and Eve's rebellion against God that results in their alienation from him. Yet on the day of their sin, God did not strike Adam and Eve with bodily and eternal death, which, according to his own decree, they deserved. Why not? It was his grace and mercy, the divine attributes that ground all forgiveness. So um, think about that. Uh, God forgave them, and Keller notes that they were unrepentant. Same thing in the Cain narrative. In both cases, God extends mercy to the unrepentant. Have you thought about Adam and Eve as unrepentant recipients of the forgiveness and mercy of God? What about Cain? He's very unrepentant. But when God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he gives them every opportunity for repentance. Like a parent asking kids questions, or the parent already knows what happened. When, when God asks, did you eat of the tree? Like, what happened here? What went on? That's a perfect opportunity for Adam and Eve to say, we sinned against you, we repent. Instead, they blame everybody else. They don't take responsibility. God names the sin, they don't. But God still issues forgiveness, pardon, we might say. The flood narrative, though, presents as an exception to the theme of forgiveness in the opening chapters. It presents that way, but I want to suggest that it, it's not. I think it's better thought of as an important qualifier on the nature of God's forgiveness. And this goes back to what I said where we need to read all that the Bible has to say. If we only look at Adam and Eve and see God forgives the unrepentant, we might think that that's all there is. So it doesn't matter if we repent or if we try to pursue a right relationship with God. That's not true, and the flood narrative proves it. The flood narrative proves that God takes sin seriously. Um, it shows us that God's forgiveness is the, is the kind that equally honors justice and mercy. It's not the cheap forgiveness that simply acts as if the offense never occurred. God speaks truly about our sin. Um, what I'm about to say, Keller didn't dwell on this, but 
I was reading the flood narrative last night as I was thinking about this, and it, it may help us a little bit. The flood narrative is rightly thought of as an enormous act of judgment that essentially turns the world into a graveyard, but it's more than mere punishment. Rather, it's an act of God to bring about righteousness, rightness, justice. Here we get into our struggles with English language and other languages. But it's, it's an act of God to bring about rightness or justice on the earth. The heinous acts recorded between Genesis 3 and 6 demonstrate that humans were actively bringing about injustices on the earth. Many were victimized because the perpetrators of injustice were not stopped, and the victims had no recourse for ju justice until God brought it about in the flood. What's more, the account, this is Keller again, what's more, the account illustrates God's grief over sin, a foreshadowing of God's suffering for sin on the cross. So in Genesis 6, it says that God was grieved. Uh, The lack of shalom or peace on earth is especially clear in the Genesis narratives through human relationships described in these opening chapters. But here, it's a lack of shalom or peace between God and his creatures. God is not disaffected by the absence of shalom. He's not disaffected by sin. Sin actually affects God. Have you thought about it that way? Our sin affects God. Even still, he's not quick to execute punishment. Instead, he is patient. That's how Peter interprets the Noah account. So in 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter says that God was patient while Noah was building the ark. Um, when it comes time to execute judgment, God is grieved. I think that sheds new light on God's forgiveness. It's costly. It's costly. So some critics of Christianity will look at the flood and say, anyone who would look at this as a good thing, they're awful. They're awful people. They're vindictive. But those are the same people who we read about last week who were saying you should tattoo on anyone their, their sin, basically. Well, God is slow to, to punishment, to judgment. And it's not, it's not vindictive. It's to set things right, and it grieves him. Um, God would work to set things right, but in that setting right or justifying, there would be judgment. It would come through the waters of judgment. Nevertheless, his commitment to his original creation purposes was demonstrated through his covenantal act of salvation to Noah, his family, and the living creatures. So there is judgment for sin. Forgiveness is costly, but there's an openness to reconciliation, a restored covenantal relationship. Um, God would not give up on that relationship. That would be the no forgiveness model. Nor would he simply pretend that the offenses never occurred. That's the unconditional forgiveness or cheap grace model. He would not make humans earn his forgiveness. That's a transactional forgiveness model. Instead, through his own grief, he would bring about salvation through judgment. And in that way, he moved toward humanity, giving appropriate attention to both mercy and judgment, forgiveness and justice. So this is um, a foreshadowing of what we're going to get at in Romans in a few weeks. Our salvation, God's grace, is not unconditional. It's unconditioned. Okay, so we'll, we'll have to think through that really carefully. But God doesn't act as if things never happened. Um, but there's nothing we can do to condition God's forgiveness. We can't earn it. 
but it's unconditioned. It's by his own love and mercy. Um, but he does require a response. That's where we can say God's grace is conditional. God's grace must be met with repentance, but its source is not conditioned in anything outside of God's mercy and grace. It's a small shift, but I think it's one that influences the way we think about forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't unconditional. The restoration of the relationship is always conditioned on the response of the forgiven party. That's what we saw in the parable of the unforgiving servant. So think about that. Um, it sounds wrong, doesn't it? God's grace isn't unconditional. Your experience of God's grace is conditioned based on your response of faith and repentance. And as we, we should have an unconditioned offer of forgiveness to other people, even as we understand that the kind of relationship we share with them afterwards will be conditional based on their repentance and willingness to relate appropriately. That brings justice and forgiveness together. All right, any questions on that? Because it, it is a little bit odd sounding. Okay. Um, Keller posits that the necessity of true repentance, as we've just been talking about, is a clear implication of God's grief over sin and his equal concern for justice and mercy. True repentance, the kind that gives honor to the mercy and justice of God, is not so concerned with the avoidance of consequences, but with sorrow for grieving God. He explains, if you say, I must stop doing this thing because it will get me into trouble, then you are not really sorry for the sin itself, but for the consequences or results of the sin. You are not sorry primarily because it grieved God, but because it grieved you or others. This means that as soon as your sinful habit stops causing trouble for you, you will stop causing trouble for it. That sounds like John Owen to me. He's, he's getting a good Puritan turn of phrase there. Um, but if you recognize and feel poignantly what your sin is doing to God, you will have a deeper and more permanent motivation to turn away from the sin itself. This is good practical counseling when we think about God's forgiveness and our life in fellowship with him. If the only reason that you're connecting with God right now is because you hope that it will get you out of some kind of a hardship, as soon as that hardship goes away, what need do you have for God? I mean, that's a really myopic, short-sighted view of life, but it's logical to a certain extent. Ultimately, it's irrational. But if your only reason for connecting to God is because you're feeling like, yeah, he was right, sin actually does bring about consequences, as soon as those consequences go away, you'll feel like you can go away from God. That's not what God wants. That's not what we want when someone's hurt us. Um, we, we want them to continue to relate to us. So if we can connect to this, it will help us in our transformation and our relationship with God. Keller sees forgiveness on display again in God's interactions with Abraham, particularly in the counting of Abraham's faith for righteousness. And given the association between righteousness and forgiveness in the Pauline literature, I think he's right. This identification as Abraham, of Abraham as righteous, I think has to do with forgiveness as well. Abraham was, what was Abraham doing when God called him? Worshiping the moon, okay? Um, I, maybe he wasn't right at that moment, but, but Abraham was an idolater, and God called him. So, unconditioned on anything that Abraham did, God issued forgiveness and a relationship to Abraham. Now, for Abraham to enter the land and to enter the covenant, 
it was conditional for him to respond, right? So here's, here's where we're seeing these pieces come together. Um, forgiveness, the term, is first explicitly referenced in Genesis when Joseph's brothers appeal to him for forgiveness, as Mary Jo mentioned. And in response to their request, Joseph uh, responds by rejecting vengeance and pledges love to them, a crucial element in forgiveness. Now, if we examine this story carefully, we would realize that he's also done some investigation work to know, are they repentant? <laughs> you know, um, so it's not just the cheap grace model going on here. It's deep, lasting forgiveness um, in, in a live relationship, we might say. Outside of Genesis, forgiveness features as well. It's especially present in God's relationship to the nation of Israel and communicated through the sacrifices mandated for the forgiveness of sins. The association between sacrifice, the tabernacle, and Israel's worship indicates that at the heart of all the Old Testament worship then is forgiveness. Without it, there can be no relationship at all. From Exodus to Deuteronomy, reception of forgiveness from God is paired with sacrifice. Those sacrifices form the conceptual basis for the sacrificial death of Christ that brings about the forgiveness of our sins. So Christ, will, his sacrifice will be our subject for consideration next week. But I just want to pause again here and say the reason we have a regular confession of sin and assurance of pardon at the start of all of our service is because all of our worship is conditioned on the fact that God welcomes us in his presence to worship him. And that's conditioned on his forgiveness of us which is conditioned on the sacrifice of Christ. So when we do our corporate confession of pr every week, that's not an, a thoughtless thing. Nothing else that happens in the service can happen without that being real. So when we confess sin, we're speaking in general terms often, you need to personalize it. And you need to personally respond to the grace that God's offered in Christ. And then when we issue the affirmation of pardon, it'll be true for you as well, because God guarantees that to us. Um, throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, though, it's generally God's forgiveness of humans that's being emphasized. So we do have some instances where we see people in the Old Testament having to forgive each other. We've talked about some of them here. Let's move on to the Psalms, though. Uh, forgiveness in the Psalms. Keller labels the Psalms the premier Old Testament expression of both the character of God's forgiveness and the means for its reception. He lists most of the penitential Psalms there, and he examines really carefully Psalm 130. I bet if you looked it up on the internet, you'd find a few sermons by Keller on Psalm 130, and you'd get the gist of what he's saying in this chapter. But the Psalms teach us a few things about forgiveness. Number one, they teach about the universal need for forgiveness. It's not simply that everybody's messed up or that everybody sins, but that everyone is alienated from God and we need God's forgiveness because no one can stand before him. We need right standing before God. We call that justification often. That comes through Christ and the Psalms help us know we need right standing. We, there's a universal need for forgiveness. It also shows us about the problem of forgiveness. The problem is that our sins don't dissipate into thin air. There's always a record of the wrong that we've done. I, I love the song that Ben taught our church on, if God counted up all the sins that we've committed, who can stand? Who can stand when the record stands against us? None of us can. 
And the problem of forgiveness is further illustrated when we think about Proverbs like this, acquitting the guilty and condemning the just, both are detestable to Yahweh, to the Lord. How is it that God can forgive the guilty? Count as righteous the unrighteous. Well, we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, We learn about the fact of forgiveness, the fact of God's forgiveness. Uh, The psalmist doesn't say, um, we, we come to you hoping that we might find forgiveness in you. The psalmist asserts, with you is forgiveness. Um, you know, one of the benefits of listening to the Psalms put to music, like the corner room or the Psalms project, is you hear this in music all the time, that with God there is forgiveness. So when we need forgiveness, when we're troubled with guilt, um, we don't slide into depression and we don't run to distraction. We know forgiveness is with God and we find relief for our guilt there. I should say there are other reasons that people experience depression other than guilt, but that is one of them. And we can deal with it by running to God. Uh, We learn about the inward result of forgiveness. And this one's surprising. When we receive pardon, the inward result that Psalm 130 points out is fear of the Lord. This is a phrase that is hard for us because fear always has negative connotations in our world. But in the biblical use of the phrase, the fear of the Lord, it's positive. It's associated with blessedness or happiness. And it refers to a sense of being humbled and overwhelmed. It's not a matter of mere fright. It's joyful awe and wonder. So when we actually experience God's forgiveness, we experience joyful awe and wonder, a right fear of God. Um, Keller says that when we really understand that we are forgiven, it does not lead to loose living or independence, but but to surrender to his sovereignty. Here, the term sovereignty is not talking about something related to John Calvin and predestination. Sovereignty is just someone's rule, right? So, So we submit further to God's rule when we're forgiven. We don't self rule. So there are some editions of Christianity out there that say, ask God for forgiveness and then do whatever you want. That's not, you haven't tasted God's forgiveness. You're not forgiven. Forgiveness draws you further into the rule of Christ and living in conformity to his commands because we're not safe from hell. We're safe from sin. And it's sin that occasions what we call hell um, or the other various terms that the New Testament uses for eternal punishment. That's, you can't get saved from that without being saved from sin. So yes, you're saved from hell as you're saved from sin. So when we experience God's forgiveness, we need to experience it like the psalmist, which is a drawing closer into the heart and the rule of God. Um, I have some more stuff on there. This is a little pet peeve of mine because I grew up in a world that um, said, ask Jesus into your heart and follow our rules it, it was very strange. But in, at the end of the day, you could be a backslidden carnal Christian and not be following Jesus and feel confident that you'll go to heaven when you die. That was the language we were used, given. And that changed the way that I think that we would forgive and relate to other people. The, the way you conceive of God's forgiveness will shape the way that you forgive other people. So when you have problems upstream, vertical, then horizontally you're going to have issues as well. The ultimate goal of forgiveness then is a restored relationship with God. That's what the Psalms teach us. And the basis or the cause of forgiveness is found within God himself. Think of how often in the Psalms, in Isaiah, for example, that 
the, the biblical authors say that God himself will redeem his people or will forgive his people. Um, so the basis of forgiveness, God's and ours, is always him. Uh, we find forgiveness in the prophets. We're um, running a bit short here, but that's why you have a manuscript note. You can read these things. Um, the Old Testament is broken up into different ways. The Hebrew Bible splits it up into three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Um, the Christianized Latin edition of the Bible that most of ours follow put the Old Testament into the Pentateuch, historical books, wisdom books, and then the prophets. Little Bible trivia here. This is not gospel truth, but Keller looks at those divisions and finds in the Pentateuch a covenant made and forgiveness provided. In the wisdom book, it shows us how to live as people who have received forgiveness from God. The historical books show us how humans often break the covenant and reject God's forgiveness. And then in the prophets, as we're learning, as Josh is preaching through Zechariah, that there are consequences to breaking the covenant, but God is committed to renew the covenant or to issue a new covenant and to offer forgiveness again. The text that Josh is preaching today, I was reading it this morning, it is a great text to think about this um, for consequences and renewal of the covenant. Um, Keller writes, there's nothing more astonishing than to realize that even the prophets called by God to tell Israel about their sin and the coming judgments could not avoid also speaking in the most moving way about God's mercy and grace. I just submit that that ought to be the way that we talk. We, we shouldn't try to avoid talking about sin, but we also can't avoid talking about mercy and grace. Um, when you think of the book of Isaiah, what are the verses that you have imprinted on your heart? Probably the verses about the suffering of Christ and the forgiveness of God. If that's true for you, why wouldn't that be true when we talk to non-Christians? Why wouldn't the, the overriding drive be the mercy and grace of, of God, the forgiveness of God, even as we speak truly and rightly about sin? All right, forgiveness in the Gospels. Um, the Gospels pick up these themes in the Old Testament. They emphasize them again, and they expand them because they become expanded in Jesus in light of the Christ event. Um, we learn, we've, we've already looked at the parables Read the Gospels. Think about the forgiveness that we find offered by Jesus, but instructed by Jesus in our relationships with one another. In particular, the command, uh, the sometimes troubling line, that if you forgive others their offenses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. You know, we're sometimes troubled by this. Does this mean that we earn forgiveness? This is what I thought. I thought I was constantly losing my salvation was the phrase I would use as a kid. Anytime I realized I wasn't forgiving someone, I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm no longer forgiven by God. That's not what Jesus is teaching. As we've already seen, Jesus is teaching that our forgiveness is a response to God's own forgiveness. So what, what's being said here is, if you're not forgiving others, there's a real likelihood that you haven't experienced God's forgiveness yet. Not because God is withholding it, but because you aren't entering into it. So here we, sometimes we read that verse and we act as if God is holding it over our heads and the, we're just waiting for him to release it when we do the right thing. Jesus is saying God's already offered forgiveness. And if you're not being a forgiving person, you're not living in that forgiveness. You're not being transformed and defined by it. Um, so this shouldn't be 
scary to a degree. It should be somewhat, um, yeah, sobering maybe would be the right word if we're recognizing we don't have forgiveness in our lives. But our forgiveness is by God isn't earned. It's freely given. Our forgiveness for others is based on that free forgiveness. Um, you can read about that there, but one proof is Jesus' line that many, uh, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. The one who's forgiven little loves little. If you only have a tiny experience of God's forgiveness, it's not surprising if you withhold forgiveness from other people as well. Uh, so this is how I'd want to counsel you to think. Um, don't think, I better forgive so that God will forgive me. Rather, you should think, I can and must forgive because God has forgiven me in Jesus Christ. And if you're finding it difficult to forgive someone, we need not question our salvation or whether God has forgiven us. Instead, we should reflect on the admissions and the claims in the phrase, I can and must forgive because God has forgiven me in Jesus Christ. Think about what we're admitting and what we're claiming there. So for example, it may be that we do not, need, that we do not consider ourselves in need of God's forgiveness. Maybe when you're failing to forgive other people, it's because you don't think God had to forgive you very much. Um, think about the implications of that phrase. Um, to those who are forgiven little or believe forgiveness for themselves to be unneeded, they'll forgive others little. Remember that a key element of forgiveness is taking pity on the offender by remembering, A, that the offender is more than their offense, and B, that we are more like them than we'd like to admit. We've committed offenses and we don't want to be defined by them alone. The basis of forgiveness in our last 30 seconds, of course, is the death of Jesus Christ. Um, that's our whole lesson next week is going to be thinking about how that can be. How is it that God can abhor when the unrighteous are called righteous, but yet he calls us righteous? We'll think about how that relates to the sacrifice of Christ. And hopefully, as we meditate on the forgiveness that we have in God, um, we'll come to affirm what C.S. Lewis says. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Um, there's a lot more in there that I'd encourage you to read, reflect on, and talk about with your family. But we're at the end of the class. So thanks for hanging through.